0: Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Remember what it was like being a kid in school? The teacher would talk, most of the time you listened, but every once in a while, you'd start drifting off, daydreaming, thinking about lunch, or a project you were going to work on after school. At some point, the teacher would notice you staring out the window and probably call on you. Well, those days may be over, at least for students in China. As the Wall Street Journal reports, in some elementary schools, kids start their days by putting on an electric headband. As a teacher goes over their lessons, the headband monitors electrical activity in the kids' brains. Basically, are they tuning in? It sends that data to the teacher in real time, so they know who's paying attention and who's not. But it doesn't end there. The system also sends the data to the kid's parents and matches it against learning objectives. These headbands are part of a growing effort in China to use applications in artificial intelligence in schools. Like AI-enabled cameras that scan students, detecting when they raise their hands or talk behind the teacher's back. There are facial recognition robots that take attendance and quiz toddlers. And kids wear Bluetooth wristbands that record their heart rates and how much time they're spending in the library or on the playground. Proponents say this information can boost safety, help teachers quantify learning progress, and make education more individualized. Skeptics question the science and say it's excessive surveillance— that it resembles Beijing's push in recent years to deploy similar technology to keep watch over its citizens. But there may be a bigger goal. Beijing wants to make the AI industry a driver of economic expansion. Having virtually unobstructed access to a potential sample pool of around 200 million students allows Chinese scientists and researchers to amass an ever-growing database of human behavior, which allows them to develop more advanced algorithms. That could give China a key advantage in the ongoing race with the U.S. for global dominance in artificial intelligence. But it's not just China versus the U.S. Global spending on artificial intelligence shows no sign of slowing down. Organizations are expected to invest $35.8 billion in AI systems this year. That's up 44% over last year. And AI spending is projected to more than double by 2022. Experts on the forefront of AI are optimistic about the growth of the industry, but they also see challenges and some red flags. From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Kateri Yokum. This episode is part two of our highlights series, where we bring you the best from The Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Conference in Laguna Beach, California. For three days, Wall Street Journal editors gathered alongside leaders in the tech community to discuss everything from industry disruption to data privacy. Today, we're focusing on the future of AI.
1: Hi, I am Jason Anders, and I am chief news editor at The Wall Street Journal. I'm speaking with two experts in artificial intelligence. Oren Etzioni is CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Its mission is to conduct high-impact AI research for the common good— That includes projects like Semantic Scholar, an AI-generated public search engine that has indexed 170 million scientific results from a wide range of disciplines to make access to relevant research easier. They also developed Grover, a model that can generate realistic-looking fake news articles in order to be able to detect those fake news articles written by AI in the future. Carol Riley is a roboticist and co-founder of the self-driving car company Drive AI. Drive AI partnered with the city of Arlington, Texas to operate autonomous shuttles in the area. It was acquired by Apple in June. The big question we want to answer, what is the force that will continue to fuel innovation in artificial intelligence? And what systems or guardrails are necessary to protect security and personal privacy along the way? Welcome, uh, Oren and Carol. I thought it'd be good to start, since you are both technologists who literally work in artificial intelligence, just ask for your take on what is AI as you see it and and just as much what isn't it.
2: And Oren, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. So um, I would say, I guess, three things. The first one is that the origin of the concept back in the 50s was, of course, to emulate and maybe sometime even surpass human intelligence. That's not what we're seeing with the uh, recent surge in AI and interest in AI, machine learning, deep learning. What we're seeing are techniques that utilize a massive amount of data to build predictive models that have shown themselves to be effective in a very wide variety of applications from manufacturing to healthcare and more and more. So that's the reality of AI today. And then in terms of what people are thinking about, what people have been talking about and where we think to the future, I think it's become almost a kind of Rorschach test. People project their own concerns, whether it's about privacy or about AI taking over or about bias and discrimination, jobs, these are all legitimate concerns. But I bet you if we did a quiz, the professor in me says, okay, everybody take out a piece of paper and write down four sentences about what you think AI is and will be, and then we'll compare those, They would be quite different. That's why I say Rorschach. Yeah, yeah. Carol, what do you say?
3: Yeah, um, I think artificial intelligence is a machine displaying some level of intelligence. And there's narrow AI, which does very small specific tasks, or general AI, which is the the fear of that killer robots coming in, right, right. And I've always worked on the, I mean, it's a, it's a spectrum, and you know, I've always been very fascinated with the area of human machine collaboration. And I do think that we're very far off from that narrative of Terminator, but I do I think hope, there's a lot of tools and uh, uh, ways that humans and machines can work together. And very, very broadly, it's you know, I think just to be clear, it's like this big umbrella of AI and then you have machine learning underneath it and then you have deep learning as a subset. So yeah. those words are generally interchangeable, but you know it's kind of like that layering. And I'm excited to see new techniques like hey. deeper learning things in HMM. Sure.
1: And, and even though we're seeing the term maybe be a bit overused right now, especially kind of from a marketing standpoint, you're optimistic, right? You're excited about the say of the technology and you feel like in general the things happening are are truly good and exciting. And
3: Oh, yeah. I think we're just right now at the cusp of new breakthrough. So I will say that, you know, we've undergone what I call like the first wave of this AI transformation. You know, there's the slogan like AI is the new electricity and that it will power everything. We're just kind of starting it and eventually it will fall into the background and be so seamless. Right now it's so front and center in everyone's minds. The the first AI transformation was really powered by data and compute. You always hear data and compute, you know? And I think right now we're entering into this second wave of AI which will be powered by, like, the rise of tools and talent and ideas. And, you know, I think one really interesting thing is when we talk about, like, where will we be competitive on a global scale? And is it U.S. or China? You know, really it's this, um, I don't like pitting things against each other, and I don't think it's a winner-take-all situation. The, the popular machine learning course taught by Andrew has taught over 2.5 million people in that class alone. Sure. And that would have been impossible for any professor to teach no matter how popular you are. So I'm really excited that these tools and these platforms are available so that talent can spring from anywhere. Um, Silicon Valley, where I'm from, used to be like, you know, everyone's like, what's the secret sauce and can we replicate it? Yeah. And we're seeing like different communities create their own secret sauce because I think so many problems are local and... Talent can spring from anywhere now that you have all these tools available online, and the discipline of this new group of learners who are learning online and the need for ethics.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I want to come back and unpack a lot of that, but I'm going to start yeah. with one of the things you touched on that we've talked about a lot today, which is this idea of AI as something of an arms race, yeah. um, right or wrong. It's certainly one of the ways it's been positioned, certainly between countries. And I want to pull up a graphic that is based on some analysis that Oren, your group did, I believe. And you can see it here. And this is this is a, a look at all of the research that was published and the top 10% of papers that are cited. So I, I guess... Those are ones that tend to have the most impact and, and sort of are the ones that, that are the most prominent. And what, what you see is a really remarkable increase in, um, in research coming out of China. What, is, what does that say to you?
2: Um, it says to me that we had a stereotype of the Chinese being very uh, diligent, but kind of uh, copycat, right? Oh, they're copying our technology. They're not really doing the cutting edge innovative stuff. That's why we looked at the top 10% and even the top 1% of papers based on their uh, impact, their citation rate. And what we found is that that stereotype, if it was ever true, it's certainly no longer true that Chinese are doing their share of innovation. This is in the academic realm, but I assume it's equivalent in in the business realm. And so we have to take that into account. And of course, we see more and more from the government, the attempt to invest in our own research and innovation, and it's not zero sum, like you said, but we're also taking steps that aren't to our benefit, and that's around mm. immigration. The statistics are showing the various steps the Trump administration has taken are hurting immigration at the undergrad, at the PhD level, at the professor level, postdoc, etc. I want to stick with this, this for one moment, and Carol,
1: ask you. You know, there, there are folks who would look at a, at a graphic like this and say, "Oh, that's a that's a problem. Is it? Is it a problem? You
3: know, I'm actually just so excited that people are like AI is now at the front of not just the academics mind, but in terms of business and people are really trying to transform their companies to become like AI first companies. You know, I think when I started grad school and. 2004. NeurIPS, which is the like a premier AI conference, it was this intimate group of like 400, 400 500 people in Tahoe. And it's roughly doubled every year since 2012. And now like there's about over 8,000 people there. And that still seems relatively small compared to what's going on on the global scale. So I'm just so excited that people all over the world are Dying to learn AI, it's like the most popular yeah. classes in a lot of universities that teach it. And AI will probably end up spinning out to become its own discipline. Yeah. You know, just like computer science did back in the day. It came out of math and STEM, and they realized that there was this need, and it's very different. So I think one thing that we're realizing is that AI is not just a subgroup within computer science, but actually its own discipline that's very interdisciplinary and will need to be built out in different types of schools. And I think we have to be very mindful of how we craft this major... But I'm very excited to see schools actually spin out an AI major.
1: And you told me when we talked before, too, that you felt like really the best innovation could truly come from anywhere on the planet.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, to be an entrepreneur nowadays, like the opportunity is more distributed. Uh, You just need a little bit of capital to get started. You know, the cost of compute for NVIDIA GPU is not that much to get started. And you can sit in the room and I think there'll be startups spinning out from anywhere
1: is there a risk, though, that the politicization around AI and some of these concerns about security or advantage, does that risk choking the, the development cycle? I mean, certainly with 5G right now, what we're seeing is a lot of concern that some of the steps countries are taking are frankly more about protecting national interests than advancing the technology. Do you think that we're at a point on AI where, where a similar thing could happen that could actually slow development?
2: I, I do think that we really want to maintain the open academic exchange, right? So these are our, our published papers. As you mentioned, uh, Coursera is available globally. I, I think it would be a real mistake to try and constrain the academia because ultimately we suffer, right? If you get into sensitive applied technologies, you know, AI-based weapons, it's another story. But if you try to restrict the basic research, ultimately it'll, it'll hurt. Yeah.
1: Carol, what what are some of the, I want to switch to the the actual tech that we're seeing today, and I'm just curious, what are some of the breakthroughs that you're seeing that that excite you the most right
3: now? Oh, geez. Um, Yeah, there's so many different applications, because I think, you know, problems on a global scale are different, and, you know, I I think everyone's got different pain points. For me, like I mentioned earlier, I'm really excited about the ways that AI can augment humans, you know, not replace them, and I do Mm. think that there's so many more jobs being created through AI that we haven't even explored, and I think the the fear behind AI will dissolve over time. I think when the computers first came out, there was a huge fear about security, the same the same type sure. of concerns. And now you, I think you wouldn't have imagined that a YouTube star would have been how we use a computer um, today. So uh, what I'm really excited about is the interaction between humans and creativity. So I recently joined the San Francisco Symphony as their a creative advisor. And you know we're really exploring different tools for artists and different ways that we can bring in robotics and AI to help really supplement either the conductor, the symphony, um, like the orchestra and the audience. And I feel like this is, it's it's almost like low hanging fruit because so little work has been done in the space of creativity, which is generally thought of to be what humans own. And yeah. so I think as we start to explore that space, a lot of new different products will come out.
1: Yeah. Well, Oren, what are you seeing that's most exciting today? But also, you would say kind of right around the corner. It's so not 10 years out, but something maybe even next year or the year after we will experience that we
2: don't, that we're not seeing right now. So... Like Carol, I'm an AI optimist. We see huge applications, of course, in medicine, in uh, transportation. I think people know that. One of the things that's more around the corner is applications in uh, language, natural language Mm. processing. So things like Alexa and Siri and so on are very good at transcribing your speech, but they don't really understand you. They understand if you say weather update. I think we're going to see new products that are far more sophisticated in their language understanding. I do want to sound a cautionary note, though. I think Carol perhaps is a little bit more optimistic than I am in uh, a couple of ways. First of all, the phrase AI is the new electricity is absolutely correct in capturing the transformative aspect. Whatever industry you're in, even journalism, right? Uh, AI has a role to play. There's uh, fake news, fake news detection, et cetera. That said, it's still very, very difficult to build a a high-quality working AI system. Blood, blood, sweat, and tears. It's not like you can just take a Coursera course and, and, and just do it. So very, very difficult to build high quality AI systems. And then on the other end of that, I do think that there's some very real concerns. Uh, for example, you mentioned jobs. Absolutely new jobs are being created, but the number of jobs that are already being lost in uh, retail, coming around the corner in in transportation. We're talking about millions of jobs. It will take some time to replace those, and it's not simple, right? There was a headline a while back, take coal miners and turn them into data miners. Okay, It's just (laughs) not not that simple. So we have some real issues to think about, and we need to um, build guardrails for the technology. And I'm not suggesting, okay, let's rush into uh, regulation. I wouldn't dare suggest it Mm. in front of uh, this crowd. And, of course, regulation has its own concerns, it's a blunt you know, politicized tool, but I am suggesting that we think very hard about the problems in the technology and particularly about its robustness, right? So we have these wonderful AI systems, but you know, if you've had the experience, you say something to Alexa, it works great. You say something that seems like basically the same and it crashes and burns, right? It doesn't understand you at all. Yeah. What happened there? The technology is very not robust, very brittle. Um, that's, that's a great segue into talking about
1: uh, again, some of the, not red flags, but just concerns people have about AI as it develops. And certainly one we talked about a little earlier today, this idea that AI might be used for purposes that may not be seen always in the public good, perhaps surveillance in some sort of dictatorial regime or something like that. But a big focus right now is in the way the technology is built, right? And there are a lot of infamous examples of this that folks are familiar with, You know, image recognition software that is great with white faces, but not so great with, with anything else. I, I'm wondering, are there actual applications today that you see out there that you look at and you think, uh, I'm a little worried about the way the technology came together on this.
2: Well, facial recognition is certainly a, a, an example that the people, people talk about, right uh, in terms of that. I also think there are famous examples for Amazon investigated the use of AI in screening resumes and and then had to discontinue that because AI finds pattern in the data. The patterns in the data from the past was we hire men, and so it refused to hire women, which was not the the intended consequence. So there are a lot of issues uh, around, uh, specific issues around how the technology is built. Sure. Um,
3: Yeah, there's a lot of different red flag areas, I guess, that I'll highlight. I don't think that there's just applications I will just cross off the list as a whole. I do think that weaponization is a tough one, but I used to work at Lockheed Martin Mm. as well. And I found myself working in highly regulated fields because you need people at the forefront really helming and crafting the fields. So, I mean, ethics and highly regulated fields is definitely one area that needs careful thought. A story about myself is just like training-wise, you know, I went to a small Catholic Jesuit college where we were required to take ethics and religion classes. And that really helped shape like a young person coming out. An area I'm excited and very concerned about is like personalized medicine. My new startup is actually
0: Mm.
3: in that space. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for risk as we move forward. And it's a balance between wanting to help doctors and also utilize data, but it can be skewed. And we've seen big companies who are very careful and have more limited blind spots still make a lot of big, big mistakes.
2: Sure. I I just wanted to pick up on something Carol said because I think it's very important. She said something very unusual in these modern times, which is uh, that she chose to engage with a company like Lockheed Martin because people at the cutting edge could help shape the technology appropriately. Yeah. Generally, the sentiment in high tech, right, in Silicon Valley, and we've seen this in the news, is folks at Google, Microsoft, elsewhere, saying, we don't want to engage with the DoD. Now, I respect the diversity of opinions, but it raises the obvious question. If the cutting edge folks in the private sector here say, we don't want to engage with our national security, and People in China, say, or in Russia, North Korea, don't have that choice. Yeah. And so they do engage. What does, how does that play out uh, over time? So I just think it's, it's really important to acknowledge people who are willing to, uh, to make a different choice there. Sure. I want to see if we have
1: some questions in the audience. I'm guessing we do. And, uh, yeah, we already have several. So we could start right over here.
3: Please uh, tell us who you are. Hi, uh, my name is Raul Zoda. I attend James Madison University. And Carol, I mean, as you said, you were talking about, you know, majors and students. So that really stuck out to me. Um, I guess, you know, someone who really likes tech and is pretty interested in AI, kind of what aspects of AI as you see in trends are growing and, you know, just any kind of overall advice you would give to a student like me. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, congratulations. I'm really happy to hear that you're excited about AI and and an active learner, and you're asking these questions, Uh, AI experts and domain expertise, generally there's no overlap. And so there's a big process problem that I'm seeing in the field in general. At companies, um, people who have learned AI um, are trying to replace people who have done the job for a long time and have all this know-how. And we haven't figured out a good way for these two teams to work together, speak the language, how to communicate. Um, And I think there's a lot of arrogance probably with AI engineers, because you like, you know, you're the deep learning expert, but really, what I learned was that in a company, there probably only needs to be one deep learning expert. Everyone else is a software engineer that helps build the, the tools and the framework, and a lot of other teams are the support for for that. So even if you're an AI-led company, there are a lot of other functions that are very important, and to have respect for like the business units and the especially the domain expertise. And right now, we've had a hard time figuring out how do experts work with AI scientists. And that seems to be an open problem at every company that I see right now.
1: So social skills matter very much. Yeah,
3: and it's not even just soft skills. It's just like, how do you sit down and actually move a product forward? Um, And the processes are broken, right? Like uh, if you try to follow software engineering techniques like the Mythical Man Month, those long projects don't work. And all the ideas for mobile and A-B testing is also broken when you work at an AI company. And it's been really interesting because I do think that new types of testing need to be, new frameworks and process need to be created, and right now everything's broken yeah. for AI companies.
1: Uh, another question out here on AI? Anyone? There was, a, there was a hand up over here, maybe not. Oh, I'm sorry, down here in the front, yes.
2: So there's been a lot of talk about privacy and AI being at loggerheads completely. Uh, can you speak to some of the later, latest breakthroughs or new things that are happening in AI to make oh. sure that we can ensure privacy while we achieve yeah. the goals Great of question. AI? Sure. So one of the big challenges people talked about, right, you know, Alexa is listening to you, uh, CCTV is taking pictures of you, it all gets uploaded to the cloud, and who knows what happens next. So there's more and more work on what's called AI at the edge, which is having the processing of the data, whether it's an image or audio segment happen on the device that recorded it. So imagine, yeah, your doorbell sees who comes to your door, but the analysis of whether that's a stranger or a family member stays on the device. So kind of uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens on the edge stays on the edge. So as more and more AI is carried out on the edge, you get more privacy. Carol, do you think on this trust issue, do you think we're in the right spot?
3: It's, it's, a, it's a tough question. I think it's up to every... It's up to every almost company culture and also yeah. on the national level, too, because some countries are going to be okay with it and others are not.
1: Yeah, It's a good point because, like we talked about, it's unlikely we're going to have a global standard for acceptable AI practices. It is going to kind of come down to what the companies do and kind of do we as consumers trust those different companies with what, how they've deployed it, Right.
3: Yeah, and I mean, just in terms of regulation for companies, you know, I would say that for AI companies, we really should be looking at other heavily regulated industries like medical, uh, like robotics, aviation, space. You know, I think that there are processes in place that we can start from and then move forward. Yeah, for surgical robotics, it's changed over the last few years. Like, I used to work at Intuitive Surgical. We had the Da Vinci system that came out in 99. And the robot then would not pass FDA regulation now But, you know, back then it it got started and it's improved over time. So I would also say that, you know, neural nets and aviation have been products that have been released in the public. And the same questions for that are still valid today. Yeah, yeah.
2: K- Carol mentioned, and a number of people on this stage mentioned, uh, well, of course, the laws in other countries can be different, and we need to abide by the laws in other, other countries. We certainly don't want to promote anarchy, but we also need to be cognizant of the fact that if the laws in other countries are radically inconsistent with our values, then we have to do something about that. We can't just say, well, that's the law there. Mm -hmm. Imagine that, you know, there was a Nazi country these days. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And they wanted to use AI to make uh, Nazism genocide more efficient, right? I I think we'd have to take a stand and say, no, we're opposed to that. Sure.
3: Yeah, I'll I'll just add also, um, yeah, I 100% agree with you on that statement. You know, I think what AI does... These are human problems, right? And I think AI is just helping us unravel and really is a tool for us to figure out how do we address societal differences between countries because it's helped us expose bias. I think people have bias, but human nature is better at masking and hiding these biases, but it's yep. there. And I think we're, we're at this time where we can actually... I'm optimistic, again, for using AI as a reflection to ourselves, to our society to help us understand why we are the way we are and why does our society think the way we do. And as we have different tribes of people, we will start to understand that better. And I think we can use AI to do that.
1: I think that's a very powerful point to end on. Thanks so much, Carol O'Reilly, Oren Etzioni. Thank you.
0: That was Oren Etzioni. CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and Carol Riley, co-founder of Drive AI, in conversation with Wall Street Journal chief news editor, Jason Anders. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced with help from Jason Anders and Anthony Green. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Thanks to our editors on the live journalism team, Uni Kim, Nikki Waller, and Kim Last, and special thanks to conference organizers Helen Bassett, Andrea Costa, Mary Chen, Aaliyah Aljunid, and Robin Wood-Sailor. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Kateri Yoakam.
3: Support for this show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alts including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com WSJ. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC member FINRA SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus.